for our Bible reading this morning, we're going to be reading Psalm 122. I rejoiced with those who said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing in your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built like a city that is closely compacted together. That is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord according to the statute given to Israel. There the thrones stand for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. Good morning. Welcome to our online service here at Windsor District Baptist Church. My name is Jonathan Hoffman, and it's my privilege to serve as the senior pastor here at WDBC. I want to especially welcome you if you're visiting with us this morning. I hope you feel comfortable uh, at home or maybe on a walk wherever you are uh, out engaging with us uh, in our online service today. Uh, we began a series last week through the Psalms of Ascent, and the premise of this series is that salvation is a journey by faith that terminates in the presence of God. We arrive in God's presence. And the psalm we're going to look at this morning is going to pick up a lot of themes about that. Uh, but these psalms of ascent, there's 15 of them in the Psalter. And they are pilgrim songs that are meant to refresh our hearts as we journey and travel the way of salvation. Uh, specifically, these songs are born as faith gives voice to hope. It takes faith to make this journey, but these songs are the expressions of hope. And I don't know about you, but hope is something we could all, I think, use a bit more of in these times. Uh, in terms of being Psalms of Ascent, they are meant to reflect the journey, the going up to Jerusalem. And, and metaphorically, they represent for us going up into the presence of God. And last week, we just looked briefly at some reasons why we're look, studying these Psalms. Uh, they evoke a faith in God's power. They convey a hope in God's promises, and they express a love for God's presence. And so we saw last week, whether you be in a far place or a near place, whether you are familiar with God or he's totally foreign for you, this is a journey that you can be a part of. And specifically, as we look at the life of Jesus, we've been looking at him through the Gospel of Luke uh, this year, as he's preparing to make his journey to Jerusalem in that Gospel, we see here that this journey of a pilgrim is also the way of discipleship. And last week we looked at this idea that we will see God's help when we seek God's presence. Psalms 120 and 121 were all about recognizing when you're in a far off place, not being at peace with the way things are in a world that is opposed to God and a desire to go and to be in his presence. And in, in that cry for help and in that cry, that longing to be where God is, also this idea that God's with us as we go on the journey. Well, if Psalms 120 and 121 were about uh, getting out of the distant place and traveling to the place where God dwells. This song is about looking up to the heavenly city. And the big question that we're looking at this morning is where does our journey end? Where does our journey end? What is going to happen when 
all the pages of this story are written. Where will we end up? Now, we've been in lockdown here in Sydney for a number of weeks now. I think we can say multiple months now. We've got a little bit more to go. We are, we are uh, experiencing times of boredom, isolation, and if you're like us in our home, you might have seen an uptick in your amount of time streaming uh, movies and television shows. So as we're sort of getting through the cache of, of things that uh, we wanted to watch, we're sort of venturing out a little bit, and this week we, we managed to watch a remake of the Cinderella movie, uh, a remake for this generation. And I won't spoil anything. Uh, I mean, you've probably heard of Cinderella. I won't spoil too much, but there's a line that caught me as we were watching this movie with our kids, and it was this. Uh, a key character in the story said, I choose me. And, and, and you know, in movies, how, how they kind of build everything up to a pinnacle moment and someone takes a decisive stance, and, and that was the line. I choose me. And, and, and as a, someone who's watching the movie, you can tell the producers and, and, and everyone is meant to be experiencing this moment as like you're breaking through to say, yes, this is what I want. I choose me. What a line for our generation. That's a great sentiment. And you can choose you. <laughs> we can choose me. But the question that this passage brings to mind is, is that what you want? When it's all said and done, do you want to just have you? <laughs> Are you and I going to rejoice that the end of this journey, we have ourselves? Or is there more to that? As Christians, we believe there is more to this story, and the one big truth that really arises out of this text for the believer is this, that we are going to the house of the Lord. So the Christian responds to, to the sentiment and the spirit of this age that says, I choose me. The Christian responds by saying, well, okay, you can choose you, but we are going to the house of the Lord. We are going to be with God. This psalm is a psalm of celebration. And as such, it's a fitting conclusion to this very uh, this journey that begun in Psalm 120 in a far off place through the traveling in Psalm 121. And it speaks of the celebration of the vivid and joyful remembering that moment of arrival at the city of God, the city of Jerusalem. I just want to note a couple things for you before we sort of get into this text. First of all, this psalm begins and ends by referencing the house of the Lord. Verse one, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Verse nine, for the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your prosperity. You need to see that this psalm is bookended by these two ideas, going to the house of the Lord. There is also a shift in perspective as we go through. Verses one and two recall a moment of time of being invited to go and to make the journey. Verses three to five speak to the arrival, the taking in of the city. And verses six to nine express a hope or a desire for the future of this city. Now, if you were a Jew in the Old Testament, and you've been reading the law, you would understand that God's people were commanded to make three journeys each year, three pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to celebrate festivals to the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord. Passover was one of these. 
The Feast of Tabernacles was one of these, or the Feast of Weeks. And one possible occasion that, that some scholars have suggested might have contributed to the background of this psalm, we all know every song has a good story, uh, might come from 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. This is one of a few psalms in the Psalms of Ascent, which are ascribed to David. And in 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is bringing the ark of God to Jerusalem. And it's a bit of a mixed account because when they first go to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem, they, they prepare a cart and they, and they go to move the cart. And, and the son of the man who's been hosting this ark of God's, uh, the ark of God's covenant at his home, his son, one of his sons dies because he sees the ark about to fall and he reaches out, he puts his hand on it and he's struck down. His name is Uzzah. And after David hears about what happened when they were trying to bring the ark, the, 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 the place where God said he would put his name in his presence, they're trying to bring this into the city. David said, I'm afraid, I don't wanna do that. But then after three months of watching the household of the man who, who ended up having the ark in his house, of three months of watching his household be blessed, David changed his mind and he said, no, 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 we will, we will bring the ark of the covenant. We will bring this into Jerusalem. And there's great rejoicing and there's, there's a parade and David is famously dancing before the Lord, worshiping with all his might, exercising his delight in God as they bring, as they bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And just like in David's day, there's so much joy in going to the city of God. There's also people who don't get it. As his wife, Michael, is watching from the window and she looks down and she sees him and she despises him in her heart. This is a possible occasion, we don't know for sure. But the idea of being near the presence of God is worth celebrating. And this is a psalm of celebration. For our outline this morning, I want you to note these things. Psalm 122, it inspires hope for our pilgrimage by celebrating Jerusalem, God's city, in three strophes or, or three stanzas. In the first one, we see joy in journeying to the city of God. Joy in journeying to the city of God. Secondly, verses three to five, we will see glory upon arriving at the city of God. And finally, in verses six to nine, the last strophe, we will see a love for those dwelling within the city of God. This is where we're gonna go this morning. I invite you to pray with me as we ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we come to you this morning and we recognize that we feel far off. Lord, many of us just are simply staring around the four walls of our house and that's where we were before this service, that's where we're gonna be after this service and we can feel far away. But Lord, I pray today that you would draw us near, that you would stir our hearts to joy, to peace, to gratitude, and most of all, Lord, to anticipation as to what it's going to be like in your kingdom and in your presence. God, would you strengthen us, strengthen our hearts, open the eyes 
of our minds that we might understand the wonders of your word. We'll thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen. So this is where we're going by way of our outline today. Again, remember the big truth of this passage is that we are going to the house of the Lord. And this is a song for those who would do that. Uh, Look with me, verses one and two, as we see the joy in the journey. David says, I rejoiced with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Verse two, our feet are standing in your gates, Jerusalem. As we look at this first opening strophe, we're confronted with the question, why should we rejoice in the invitation? David is recalling a moment of invitation when somebody, a fellow pilgrim, a fellow traveler said, let us go to the house of the Lord. And his response to that was joy. He said, I rejoiced when I got that invitation. Now, I want to just be very clear here. This is not a song about going to church, probably in the way that you think it is. If you're sitting there this morning thinking, oh, here here comes the guilt trip. Jonathan's going to say, oh, you need to come to church. Why aren't you happy to come to church? I want to tell you this morning, this psalm is is about a whole lot more than going to church. We can find joy in church. We can find comfort in coming to a centralized place of worship. But this psalm is about the invitation to be a part of the house of God, to go and to worship where he is. As one commentator said, the desire to visit Jerusalem is driven by the desire to enter sacred space and enjoy the presence of the Lord. This is the invitation. It's an invitation to a worshiper, to someone who already knows God. Hey, will you come? Will you join me in worship? Will you make this journey with me that we can go and be there? And the psalmist says, I rejoiced at this invitation. Now, why would there be rejoicing? Why would there be rejoicing? First of all, there is joy in the presence of the Lord. That is the fundamental understanding, is that there is delight in the presence of God. The nearer you are to God, the fuller you are with joy and delight. That is the Bible's perspective. You may have grown up in a church that was stuffy, that was rigid and formal, and people weren't kind, they weren't gracious, and you might look at that and say, that was not fun at all. Can I tell you, that's not an accurate representation of God and who he is. Those who know God in the scriptures are presented as those who are filled with delight and joy. Yes, God is overwhelming. Yes, God is bigger than we can comprehend. Yes, he is holy. Yes, this means we ought to have awe and reverence and respect. But fundamentally, there is joy in knowing him, joy in his presence. And this is the invitation. When Jesus is describing the kingdom that he is bringing and and his message and the witness of those who follow him and what they're going to do after he leaves, he describes his purpose in bringing the good news like someone who's inviting people to a banquet. He says, the king has decided to hold a banquet. God is holding a banquet. And he's inviting people to come and to feast into his presence. But the tragedy is people get the invitation and they throw it away. People go to the mailbox, they open it up, and they think, oh, no, this is junk mail. 
God goes to his own household, to the people that he called his own, to the nation of Israel. And Jesus went to them and he said, I am inviting you in to God's kingdom and his presence. But they didn't listen to Jesus. He said, well, what would the king do? And he said, go, go to the highways and the byways. Go, go to the farther outreaches because my house will be full. My banquet will be prepared. God is inviting people in to his bounty and his blessing. God wants people in heaven. He yearns for souls to be with him for eternity. He longs to fill them and satisfy them and invite them in. And for many people, that's not what they think of when they think of being a part of the church. I've heard people say, I don't want to go to heaven. Well, that sounds boring. If your vision of heaven is you sitting with a stringed instrument on a cloud somewhere looking like an overstuffed baby, can I tell you that's not an accurate description of what heaven's going to be like. That's not what you've been invited to. So there's a joy at the invitation. There's a joy at, at the expectation that there's something better ahead for me. There's also joy in the invitation. Look at verse two. The second part of the journey is that once you get there, you forget about the other stuff. Look at, look at the transition. David goes, verse one, I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Verse two, our feet are in your gates, Jerusalem. It's very jarring. And if you're trying to read this psalm and make sense of it, you say, well, what, wait a second. One minute that he's talking about being invited to go and the next minute he's there. Yeah, that's the point. The point is, the destination is so good that when you get there, all the trouble and the hardship, it's not even worth mentioning. This is exactly what Paul says when he says, I do not consider our present sufferings worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul says, stop wasting my time telling me how tough life is for me as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Paul says, you can tell me that all you want, but by the time I'm in the kingdom of God, when I am in heaven, and, 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 and the fruit that I'm enjoying right now of being a part of that kingdom, but the glory that to come is, is to come is so great, don't even bother talking about it. If you win a trip to Disneyland, you don't sit there and think, you know, I'm gonna have to go through the airport, I gotta have to check my bags, I gotta pack my bag, I gotta, I gotta fold my clothes, oh my goodness, what a drag. Can you believe it? Oh, I gotta get in the car, I gotta sit there, I gotta bore myself or so. No, if you get invited to Disneyland, you say, I'm going to Disneyland. This is gonna be fantastic. There's a joy and the invitation, a joy at the prospect of being with the Lord, and there's a joy in knowing that how great the destination is by the time you get there, your present trials and present sufferings are almost forgotten, not even worth mentioning. That's what the psalmist achieves by shortening this, by, 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 by in effect taking the beginning of the journey and the end of the journey and just puts them right together. 
And I want to ask you this morning, do you have joy at the invitation? Have you rejoiced at God's invitation to you to come and be a part of his banquet, to come to his house? Is that something you get excited about? Is that where you want to be? Is this how we're talking to non-believers about the work of Christ and what he came to do? Because that's the picture here is invitation. We can't have the kingdom. We can't say that, that this existence that we have in, in the far nether reaches from God, we can't look at that and say, oh, well, yeah, th this is heaven. It's not. But the invitation is real. Just to kind of balance our interpretation of the psalm and our understanding, I'm, I'm gonna show you a quote from Derek Kidner who I think has it spot on. He says here, what Jerusalem was to the Israelite, the church is to the Christian. Jerusalem was the place where God's people were called to be in his presence. With the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the place where God has put his presence is the church. And if I could amend this quotation, I would put a capital C in front of the church. This is where God has put his presence. So why do we evangelize? Why do we wanna to be together? Right now, the place where the Spirit of God dwells is among his people. It's not in a physical building. It's not over an ancient artifact. It's in the hearts of men and women who've been redeemed by Christ. And that's why we want to go to church. I remember when I came to Christ, this was one of the biggest differences that I saw, I found in my life. I was raised in a Christian home and they faithfully brought me to church and I, it was a great church that they brought me to, but I didn't know the Lord. And so every Sunday rolled around, I remember I'd sit in my bed and I would just close my eyes and pretend to be asleep, thinking that maybe my parents will take pity on me and not drag me out of bed and take me to church this morning. But when I came to know Christ, I'll never forget the next, the very next Sunday, we had a family commitment came up and my parents said, we're not gonna be able to go to church this Sunday because we gotta go travel and I was devastated. Before, I wouldn't have cared. Please, any excuse to not go to church. Sure, I'll respect my parents and I'll respect the religion I was raised with, but why would I wanna go to church? But when I, when I had met God and his people, when I'd seen what it was like to worship with those who knew the living God, I wanted to be there. Windsor District Baptist Church, this is a time where we're being shaken. And I realize that within our congregation, there's gonna be some people who look at COVID and say, oh, thank you, I don't have to do all that church stuff. And there's gonna be some people who look at COVID and say, every day that I am separated from my brothers and sisters is a day 
that makes me more excited to be back with them. The difference is night and day. Do you rejoice at the invitation? Do you rejoice at that? Kidner goes on to say, here are his closest ties, the Christian's closest ties, his brethren and companions, known and unknown, drawn with him to the one center as fellow pilgrims. You see, there's joy in the journeying to the city. Next, we see in verses three to five that there is glory upon arriving in the city, and there's a celebration that takes place here. Verses three to five. The psalmist has pictured himself as standing in the gates of Jerusalem, and he says here, Jerusalem is built like a city that is compacted together. There is where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to praise the name of the Lord, according to the statute given to Israel. There stand the thrones for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Jerusalem is built like a city. <clears throat> Isn't that a bit obvious? <laughs> like, uh... Where did we think we were going? Of course it's a city. What, what does he mean by this? Jerusalem is built like a city. You see, you've got to convey the tone, and this is where written word is, is difficult to, 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 to project the tone. He's standing in the gates, and he says, Jerusalem is like a city. Now this is a city. That's the effect of this expression. It's a city, it's closely compacted together. We struggle to translate that in English. The idea is woven together. It's the same word that was used in God's instruction to Moses to describe how to put the tabernacle together. He said, weave it together closely, knit it together. And so there's a sense that Jerusalem is, there's this solidarity, there's a secure dwelling, there's no breach in the walls or the borders. There is a security there. Ah, we've arrived. We've arrived at a true city. It's a city that's full. It's a city that's full, verse four, of worshipers. This is where the tribes go up to praise the Lord. There is no one left out. There's unity, but there's also diversity. And there they're praising God according to the statutes that have been given. Part of the glory is the security that is provided, but the other part of the glory is that everyone has a place there. You see, there were all these different tribes in Israel, and they could go and journey and venture to these, to these different tribes. You might decide to visit this tribe or that tribe, but Jerusalem didn't belong to any one tribe. It was the place where they all came together. I look forward to heaven when we arrive. And all the different denominations will <laughs> be able to stand together. And I'm sure we'll converse and we'll say, you know, you had this conviction that we were supposed to do it that way, and I had this conviction that we were supposed to do it that way, but, but isn't it good that we're just here? We're here now with the Lord. Kidner again says this Unity was never meant to be uniform. Israel was a family of tribes, each with its well-marked character. This is the beauty of the kingdom. In Revelation, it's pictured that people from every nation, tribe, and language of the earth will be represented in the kingdom of God. God's not up there instituting his own 
form of spiritual eugenics, saying, well, you know, I only have this type of person. I only want people from this race, this skin color. God sees glory and diversity. So the city is glorious because it is solidified. It's, it's this unit where everyone can belong and find protection and, and, and they can all be apart with no, no gaps. It's glorious because it's also a place where people have been gathered for the purpose of worshiping God. And it's also glorious because there are thrones there. Now you might look at this and you might say, hold on, I'm not used to associating judgment with, with a good thing. Isn't judgment a bad thing? Didn't Christ come to make sure that I don't get judged? I thought that's what forgiveness is all about. Why should, we re- why should we be rejoicing in a place where there's thrones of judgment? Just slow down for a moment. Judgment is essential for maintaining peace. If there's going to be order among the people of God, there needed to be judgment. Solomon would build within the palace a hall of justice and a hall of judgment. If you had a dispute with your neighbor and you lived far away from Jerusalem, you were meant to take it to the leaders of your tribe, but there was an understanding that there were some matters they weren't able to work out. And so part of the journey towards Jerusalem for some pilgrims may have been that when we arrive in Jerusalem, we can finally sort this out. I can finally get justice for this grievance. So what makes the city of God glorious? It's glorious because it is a unified collection of the diverse people of God. But it's also glorious because this is the place from which God exercises his rule. Again, Kidner says, he says, judgment may seem an anticlimax among the glories of Jerusalem, but it means justice, which is a ruler's first duty and best gift. Imagine heaven with no justice. Imagine God without justice. This was part of the hope and the expectation of God's people. Isaiah the prophet in uh, chapter two, verse one to five. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Look at what he says. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. He's talking about Zion, the city of God, and he says, as God's plan of redemption unfurls and we get closer to the end, the place where God dwells, where he's worshiped, his temple is going to be established, and he uses a metaphor here, as the highest of all the mountains, meaning it stands above, it's the pinnacle, it's everyone, and it will be exalted and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of of the God of Jacob. What do they want? He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. 
The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The last line of that verse reads like a John Lennon song. Imagine none of these things exist. But what John Lennon didn't realize was in order for those conditions to prevail, you need a perfectly just and sovereign king ruling over it. And the hope of the Christian and the hope of the saints from the Old Testament to the New Testament to today has been that the law of God would reign unchallenged over the earth. That his justice would be known. And in that, there is peace. And that's why he can say, come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So as we come to the end of these middle verses, we see that the arrival in Jerusalem is an occasion for glory. This is what the author of Hebrews is getting at in in that section that Bill referenced in his prayer. Jesus Christ has given an invitation for you not not to go be with God's rule book, not to be with just the law of God, but to be with God himself. You've been invited to Mount Zion, to the place where God's rule dwells. And when you arrive in the glory of that city, when we see all things made right as they are, we will rejoice that it is going to be an impenetrable, perfect society. A society where God is worshiped and where no one is discriminated or kept from doing that. But everyone is welcome to be a part of that and a place where God establishes the justice of his name. That sounds like a pretty good place. That sounds like a place that might make us forget about having to be locked down in COVID, to forget about that bad interaction we had online, to forget about the way we were insulted or mistreated, to forget about the way we were forgotten, to forget about the hardships and the pains that we had to bear. The arrival is going to be glorious. But this psalm doesn't end with simply arriving at Jerusalem. The last three verses, four verses, excuse me, express a petition, a prayer, a wish. It's a longing. And in this, in this wish, we see a love for those who dwell within the city. So the hope comes not just in the joy of the journey, not just in the glory of when we arrive, but there's hope for us because all of the glory of this city of God It doesn't just leave us in wonder, it pushes us into love. Love for those around us. Love for those within his city. Why does the pilgrim long for peace in this city? Nancy DeClass Walford said that the well-being of Jerusalem guaranteed the well-being of the people of God. So if we want God's people to flourish, we should want the place where God has put his presence and his name to flourish. We should want the place where God is worshiped to flourish. In these verses, verses six to nine, we have before us one of the most intricate presentations of Hebrew poetry all around the theme of peace. 
If you could read this in Hebrew or vocalize this in Hebrew, you would hear sounds reverberating around this one word, shalom. There's heightened alliteration within these verses, which is tough to convey in English. Let's look at them now and what is desired in this prayer. The psalmist writes, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. You could also translate that settled. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I will say peace within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord, our God, I will seek your prosperity. Prosperity there isn't meant to make us think of capitalism and sort of the aggregating, the the production of cash, (laughs) watching the value of our assets increase. That's not what's meant by prosperity. It's meant by this set of settledness, this this idea that, that there is a peace. Literally, the word there just means good. I will seek your good. A lack of harm and a lack of threat. The focus in verses six to nine is on peace within the city. It's not talking about peace from external threats, it's talking about peace within. And the fundamental understanding here is that if Jerusalem is flourishing, then God's people will flourish. Tucker and Grant put it this way, ultimately the poet does not seek the good of Jerusalem simply because of a nostalgic love for the city or for the religious history that it holds. Rather, his love for Jerusalem rests solely on his belief that it is the place where he encounters most fully the presence of God. This is a passage that can often be misinterpreted, I believe, as to promoting the the, the politics of the nation of Israel. What this really is promoting is the society where God is worshiped. It's interesting, if you read the history of Israel, they wandered from the Lord and they strayed into idolatry and in God's judgment of their idolatry, he banished them from Jerusalem. Even as they were surrounded by armies that were so much more powerful than them and their doom was essentially sure, there were still people walking around saying, no, 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 but God's not gonna destroy this city because his temple's here. God won't let this city pass. And much to their shock and horror, God did allow the city to be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a guy who's in exile, his name's Ezekiel and he's a prophet. He'd been shipped off in one of the earlier deportations. And he gets a vision of the Lord while he's over there. And and the, the encompassing vision that Ezekiel receives among all these visions is this vision of God's presence literally rising from the temple in Jerusalem and leaving. And what that's meant to teach us if we read our Bibles is that God's presence isn't confined to one geographical space. He may, choose to, he may have chosen to, to make Jerusalem the place where he encountered his people, but he would not be confined to that. 
And so as we come to the New Testament and we look at what Jesus said, what happened to the Jerusalem of his day, we see that God's name and his presence is not confined to just a pinpoint on a map. His name and his presence is left in the hearts of those who received his son. There's a desire for peace. And so we're kind of left, if we've just read the Old Testament, thinking, well, that's a lovely wish, but God didn't answer that prayer. How could God maintain peace within that city? And as we think about Jesus traversing his way to Jerusalem, we might be tempted to ask, well, what about his experience? Jesus knew he had to go to Jerusalem. Did he sit there and think, hey, let's rejoice. I'm gonna be betrayed and handed over and crucified. Let's rejoice. Did he look at Jerusalem and say, ah, this is a place where God is truly worshiped? No. He went into the temple and he said, this is a den of robbers and thieves. This is where people come to get fleeced. This is where people come to be taken advantage of. This is not a house of worship. And he grabbed some cords and he made a whip and he drove people and animals out of the temple, effectively stopping the sacrifice. Did Jesus find justice in the city? No. He didn't even find God's people ruling. They were ruled by a foreign power, by the Romans, ultimately. And certainly we can't say he found peace, can we? How can this be true? How can it be true that the Son of God would die in the city of God? You can imagine the apostles wondering, trying to work through these things. But you see, in God's wisdom, Jesus had to go to Jerusalem because it had to be there that he would truly open the way to the house of the Lord. It had to be there that he would establish his place on the throne of David. And it had to be there in Jerusalem that he would establish peace. You see, this is all what took place in Jerusalem in the work of Christ. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's going to the house of the Lord, but he's not going to this temple simply that that Herod built. He's going to the house of God himself. He's entering into the Holy of Holies. So that on the third day, after he rose from the dead and the earth, actually at the crucifixion, when the earth is, is shaking and quaking, the veil is torn. And after he rises from the dead, 
He can't stay in Jerusalem, you see, because the throne was never meant to stay simply in the city. The throne of God is in where the place where God truly dwells. And so it is from Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, that Jesus opens and ascends and takes the throne of heavenly Jerusalem. And the peace that he establishes is not a geopolitical peace. It's not simply a a ceasefire of arms. It is a peace at the most fundamental level. A peace, getting worked up, a peace that starts, a peace that starts and ends with God himself. That's the peace that he establishes. And so Jesus came to bring that peace. You see, that's how it's true. So, where would you rather be? You can choose me. I don't mean me, me. I mean, you can choose you. You can choose you. You can. That's an option for you. God in his grace and his love, he allows you to do that. He will not force you to worship him. But he's inviting you to worship him. He's inviting you to this banquet. He's inviting you to this city. And the question is, have you responded to the invitation? Jesus didn't come to make you nostalgic about old traditions and the ways of life. He came to invite you to a seat at his table for all eternity. Heaven is a banquet, and heaven is a city. A few things to note. First of all, you need to respond to the invitation. I am telling you now, if no one has ever invited you before, you can go to heaven Hear that invitation. You've been invited for for all eternity to dwell with God himself. We can't sit around and say, oh no, I I didn't, you know, I didn't know, you know. I gotta save the date, but it, you know. I assumed it was a mistake. No, it's not a mistake. By virtue of the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ, there is a way open for you to be right with God and to be in heaven. The question this psalm is asking is, how do you respond to the invitation? Do you say, yes, 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 I want to go. Secondly, idols. Idols are obstructions, they're not simply distractions. In the church we often talk about idols and, and if you read the Old Testament you see that, that, that there was a lot of worship of idols and we can, we can present idols as things that might take our focus away from God. But in reality, the only reason you wouldn't wanna be with God is because you're worshiping something else. You see, that's what's going on spiritually in the hearts of those who don't know and who don't want to respond to this invitation. They don't want to rejoice at going to the house of the Lord because their Lord is something else. 
They're already worshiping something else. They're finding their peace, their security in something else. Brothers and sisters, we might not be tempted to go into the backyard and, and, and carve out a little figurine for ourselves. Maybe some people are doing it. It is a bit stir crazy in lockdown, right? But we might not be tempted to do that and to set it up on the shelf and, and go through all these rituals and ceremonies. But you don't need a physical object to worship something other than the true creator God. As I was reading this week about God's judgment on idolaters, God describes it this way. He says to his prophet Ezekiel, he says, why should I, why should I respond to people who outwardly profess my name, they, they sign on the dotted line of all the creeds and they go through all the religious motions, but, but in their hearts, they've set up an altar for something else. In their hearts, they're making sacrifices to something else. They, they're serving other things. And God says, they've put an obstacle before their eyes. And I read that, it made me think of my smartphone. And how often I just, just before my eyes, it's just right there. You see, God sees this as separation from him. So when I say, where would you rather be? I'm not, I'm not saying that to be Johnny from marketing. <laughs> I'm not saying that to be somebody who well, this is, what, this is what pastors are supposed to say. This is how they sort of try to hook you in. No, I'm saying that literally because you need to answer that question. If there is some place you would rather be, then unless God intervenes drastically, that's where you will be. If you want to give your life to privilege, for your reputation, for your ego, for your comfort, and you won't be in the city of God. These idols aren't simply distractions, they're obstructions that pull us away. As we said, God's presence is our greatest blessing. Now, I realize I'm talking to a lot of people who you say, yes, that is where I wanna be. I wanna be where God dwells. I wanna be where great David's greater son is ruling in heaven. I wanna be in the presence of God and I wanna experience that glory, that, that glory, the security, the permanence of dwelling with God for all eternity. Yes, pastor, sign me up. Okay, what do we do? First of all, okay, we don't just wait, all right? Because this city of God is currently under construction. This house where God is worshiped is currently being built. And in case, and go with me on this, it's not, I didn't come up with this, this is what the Bible says. Here's the mind-blowing thing, the Bible says, you are the house, you are the city. That's right. Church, you are the house of the Lord. You are the city of God. 
This is the language of Revelation, Revelation 21. It's a great comforting passage. It's, it describes this vision of the glory of how God's gonna wrap up the universe and, and everything in it. And in this picture in, in Revelation, as you, as you read this, Jerusalem is, excuse me, uh, the church is described as coming down as a bride and then immediately then described as a city. The church is a bride, the church is a city. The Apostle Peter, in, in, in his writing to the church, he would tell them, he would say, you are being quarried. <laughs> you are stones that are alive, and you are being dug out from this world, and you are being set up as a house. You are being built into a spiritual place of worship. So, Yes, the invitation is to go to the house of the Lord and there will be a feasting and there will be a banquet there. But the mystery of all mysteries, this is crazy. The mystery is that in Christ, we become that house and we become that city. And it's already happening right now. That's not something you wait for, that's happening right now. Which means... If we are going to take this invitation seriously, we will not tear down our brothers and sisters. Imagine God's having a building project and there's Christ, he's the cornerstone and the spirit of God is moving around and, and leveling the ground and, 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 and carefully, gently positioning souls and people in that place. Can you imagine walking into the job site with a sledgehammer and just whacking it and taking it down? Can you imagine that? You say, I would never. Paul would write to the church in Corinth, he would say, whoever destroys God's house can be sure God will destroy that person. God takes very seriously how we treat one another, what we say to one another. That's why if you go to our, our members Facebook group, I haven't changed the banner in five years. It says, it's that quote from First Thessalonians. It says, let us build one another up. We need to promote the peace within the Lord's house. Let's not divide over things like vaccines. Let's not divide the Lord's house over politics until we really have to. <laughs> Let us promote the peace and the good of the Lord's people. Let us see the work that the Lord is doing. Let's give ourselves to that. As the band comes forward, just remind you again, we are going to the house of the Lord. That's where this journey ends. We will live with God forever and all eternity. That is the real source of joy. The real source of joy remains being in the presence of God himself. And the good news for us, brothers and sisters, is that you can be in the presence of God right now right now because the spirit of Christ has been poured out. Because Christ himself, he can come into your life. He can take over your own house. 
and bring you into his. Let's pray. Father, may we know the joy of the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. May you encourage us and strengthen us this day. In his name we pray, amen.